Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast, Episode 3. I'm here with uh, Richie Kerwin, uh, a fellow Irishman, and he is going to introduce himself. So, Richie, will you tell us a little bit about yourself before we get started? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Ross. Um, so, yeah, my name is Richie Kerwin. I am a uh, nutritionist and nutrition researcher at Liverpool John Moores University. And uh, my research uh, looks at the role of muscle mass and function in um, cardiovascular disease, but in cardiometabolic disease. So things like heart disease, uh, diabetes, and basically how our, our muscle and then how diet and exercise, which affects our muscle, can affect our future risk of cardiometabolic disease. Very good. Yeah, very relevant research with uh, the rise in obesity, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely won't be out of business for a while. No, you'll be, people will be flying to you soon, hopefully. <laughs> I'll throw you a curveball to start. So when oh, will Waterford win the Liam McCarthy Cup? I know it's overdue. I know you're knocking on the door. Oh, When's it going to happen for Waterford? God almighty. We've been saying it's going to happen since the, uh, the late 90s. Um, uh, and I, I distinctly remember, like 97, I think, was our, our, our year where we're like, oh, we're, go- we're going to win it. And then, like, you know, on and off since then, we've been saying we are. But uh, look, um, I think the last time we won was 1953. Um, yeah. And God, it might be 2053 by, by, by the time we get again. We, we, we get so close every year, you know. Um, but uh, I sure look at, um, <laughs> you know, you know yourself as a Galway man. You, you knocked us out of, out of there before as well. So, look, uh, I'll keep the fingers crossed, but I, I won't hold my breath. Yeah. Oh, with Joe Cannon gone, I think that's us gone as well. So I'm not going to be talking or <laughs> asking any questions like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, then just back to your own kind of work. And um, I saw in, in your, your website, you mentioned uh, you, you talked about like body image and people's relationship with food, more back to your expertise and stuff. Um, do you want to talk just a little bit about the importance of a healthy relationship with food and, you know, what that would kind of look like? Um, and then how you kind of work with clients with improving their relationship with food, if that's something they need to work on. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose one, one thing to, um, to kind of to preface that with is kind of why I, I, I find it important. And um, so when I first got into nutrition, I would have been about 14 or 15 years of age. And I, I used to be um, overweight as a teenager myself. And I, I got into nutrition then at 14 or 15, started reading up uh, a lot about it. Um, and I started losing weight myself and I, I will be completely honest. I definitely had some form of disordered eating back then. And it's not a, um, a good condition to live with. And it is something that can stick with people for a very, very long time. So for quite a long time myself, I had a, let's say a, a poor relationship with food and it, it's not a good way to be. And by poor relationship, I, I I'm going to say, I, I would consider certain foods good or certain foods bad. And I, eating those kind of foods would, would affect my mood and um, basically how I felt about myself. So, you know, if I, if I ate something that I, I consider like, you know, inverted commas, bad, like, you know, um, I would feel bad about myself. I'd feel guilty. And I see that so much these days. And social media has a massive role to play in that because people like, you know, really, really nice black and white answers, which food is good, which food is bad, um, because it's easier to understand, it's easier to digest. but it's so poor for people's opinion of, for people's thoughts around food and it does nothing for them. And I see people struggling with their relationship with food. And so with, for me, when I work with people, it's really, really important that one thing that I focus on is the language that we use around food. So for example, I will never use the word good food or bad food with somebody because I don't think that there are good foods or bad foods. Food is food. And, you know, I think we put more of, values on them ourselves which we don't need to um so i'm very very um kind of strict about you know when i speak with a client if i hear them using a certain word like once you know they've said their bit i'll say look i I just want to bring to your attention here that you said this i don't think we should use that word it's not good for your mentality around food at all um the same thing goes with the way we we actually uh, deal with with how they handle their food so for example um you know if people give dietary recommendations let's say people give some macro and calorie recommendations or something like that i stay away from fixed values 
And what I do is I tend to work within ranges because I think flexibility is hugely important for, let's say, fostering a good relationship with food. If you're flexible in your approach to how you, you handle food and how you think about food, it's going to be much easier to develop a good relationship. So, for example, I, I'll never say, OK, you need to eat 1700 calories and you need to eat exactly uh, 90 grams of protein or something like that. I'll say, look, we've got this range. Eat within it. If you if you're in that range, you're grand. If you fall outside of that range, you're also grand as well. But like more of the time, we'll try and eat within that range. Um, and I, I try to kind of also incorporate foods that traditionally, again, people would consider bad or not diet foods as much as possible into somebody's diet, because I want people to enjoy their food, because I, I think food is one of the greatest enjoyments that we have in life and people should be able to enjoy it. Um, so I try to encourage people to incorporate those foods into their diet, to encourage them to, to eat out with friends and to, I suppose, to relax around food, because a lot of people are very, very uptight about it. Um, so kind of in a nutshell, I don't want to go on about it too much, but like that's kind of a, a little bit of my, my philosophy around coaching. Brilliant. Yeah. So being flexible and actually I had a coach myself and one thing he was telling me is, you know, literally exercise that flexibility, you know, go and have these meals out that will test your, you know, ability to kind of uh, enjoy the food and not worry too much about it. Uh, that, that was huge for me. And then um, just, yeah, not stressing too much over it is big. Uh, something you said is about genetics and i hear some people say oh sure i don't have the genetics for this or i don't have the genetics for that you know what would you say to a client who is focusing on genetics and they kind of maybe use it as a, like a limiting belief or they they think they just can never be a certain way because of the genetics they were endowed with yeah so it, it, it's it is a common conversation funnily enough um one thing i say to people is and i, I find myself using this phrase um a lot and, and using it more and more. And I use it with myself a lot as well. It's comparison is the thief of joy. Um, it's, it's very, very easy to compare ourselves with somebody else. So like to give an extreme example, I'll, I'll talk about, let's say, um, let's talk about fitness influencers um, and people who have absolutely spectacular genetics when it comes to building muscle and uh, staying lean. Um, and people see these individuals who have like absolutely spectacular physiques and like, and by, by saying that they have good genetics for those physiques, I'm not saying that they don't work for them. I'm sure they absolutely do. But some physiques are potentially not attainable for, for certain individuals. And we have to be aware of that. So what I talk to clients about is I say, like, we're not comparing ourselves to anybody else. We're not comparing ourselves to this guy on, on or this girl on Instagram or wherever. What we're going to do is we are just going to support ourselves in making improvements in what we do, in our actions, in our behaviors. Um, and I, I never set solid goals like for a client. Like I, and I know that sounds almost counterintuitive for some people. I never say, okay, in, in eight weeks, we are going to lose uh, four kilos. I, I, I never say that. I'm never going to say to somebody, okay, we are going to reduce your waist circumference by such and such. Or I don't do that because I, I don't think that is useful for people. It's nice to have goals like that for some individuals, but for me, I prefer to work with an individual and say, okay, look, maybe we're not going to focus specifically on a weight to lose, but we will focus on certain weight loss techniques, which involve eating better, uh, exercising more regularly, practicing portion control, et cetera. Um, so yeah, it, it's a matter of helping individuals get better over time that better doesn't exactly have a, a fully defined form when we start out our, our, our coaching. Um, because I think, like, from my perspective as a coach, I don't know what this person is capable of, okay? And I, I think it's irresponsible of a coach to say to somebody, yeah, we're going to get you jacked and tan in, in eight weeks. I, I don't think that's realistic because come the end of those eight weeks, if somebody's not jacked and tan, they will feel incredibly disappointed. Whereas at the end of those eight weeks, if you can say, okay, this is where we are now. Look where you came from. Look at all of that progress that you've made. You're doing amazingly. And I think that's just a, a nicer approach to use when, when speaking with individuals. Yeah. Oh, you're bringing up so many points there. Like, I think all people need to improve their kind of metabolic profile is like, uh, like 5% reduction in, in weight loss. So if they were able to maintain that for their whole life, that'd be a big win in itself. 
Um, yeah, I remember seeing as well, there's a, a page, it, I think the guy's called Obese to Beast is his name. And he basically went from like, you know, morbidly, like imagine the most obese person, like, you know, 400 plus pounds down to, I think he's like around 180 now. And he did a bodybuilding show. And like, he still has kind of skin folds, like excess loose skin. But like, his physique is like amazing compared to what it used to be. His quality of life, you know, his, his longevity, his life expectancy is huge. And like you said, comparison is the thief of joy. If he compares himself to anyone else, he'll completely take away from the amazing progress he's made in his own journey. So yeah, really good points there. Yeah. Um, and then how can we practice kind of like being more moderate and flexible, you know? So I think you're talking about a little bit about black and white thinking. It's, it's so easy to do that. You know, uh, how do you kind of get people to a place where they get away from the black and white? I, I kind of say into the gray, um, because I think people are just very easily led into the black and white thinking nowadays. I, I know I, I like I like that you you use that phrase in, into the gray because I, I think it's 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 a really important area. It's, it's it's difficult to navigate. Like you said, black and white is easy. OK, good, bad. Yes, no. Um, do this. Don't do this. Um, whereas when you've got a gray area and you've got so much flexibility, it is difficult for people and it does need to be practiced. So, for example, one thing that I, I will do with people is, like I said earlier, as I will encourage them to incorporate, you know, certain foods that they might not associate with, you know, being particularly healthy or might not associate with weight loss into their diet regularly. So for example, if I, when I work with somebody, I usually write up a, a sample, a couple of sample days of eating. And I'll say, look, this is what your, your eating could look like. And I, I always kind of throw in a load of caveats about, okay, this is not how I want you to eat. This is what, this is just to give you an example because people like examples to, to, to follow, to give them an idea. And I'll incorporate, like, I'll always ask somebody, what are your favorite foods when we're, when we're working together, what foods you don't want to eat as well. Um, and I'll incorporate some of those favorite foods into a, a meal plan. And I'll say to them, okay, when we're working together, I want you to plan a couple of days ahead. Okay. And incorporate some of these, you know, foods into your, you know, your day of eating um, based on some of the guidelines that we have. Okay. So, you know, like uh, I, I want you to eat within a certain range of calories, certain amount of protein. I'd say pop this food in here, work around that and go from there. And that's how we'll start out, okay? Now, that, while there's some flexibility in that, there's still a certain amount of rigidity in that. And I do think that to a certain extent, certain, you know, a little bit of a rigidity at the start of a program to help people learn is useful. But then as we move forward, what I like to do is I like to get people to relax a little bit more about it. So for example, I'll say, okay, look, you're going out this weekend, don't track, go out, enjoy your food. Um, the next day, we're just going to track as normal. We're not going to make any alterations to your, to your you know, food. We're not going to say, okay, like you, you, you're going to eat a load the day before. Let's, let's make, you know, cut down your calories a lot the, ne the next day after. In general, I'll try not to do that um, because I just want to encourage people to have, again, it comes back to the, having that better relationship with food. It's like, it's not that you've you're punishing yourself for what you ate the day before by eating less the day after. It's just like, right, I'm having a good night out with my friends. I'm eating a little bit more than normal. I'm probably enjoying it a lot more, enjoying myself. Then I'm just getting back to normal the next day. That sounds very reasonable what you're doing and like kind of very mindful as well. It's like, I'm not going to have this, you know, night out with my friends and just kind of try and make up for last time in terms of I've been so rigid that uh, I need to take this opportunity um, and then also just kind of bouncing back and not doing anything too restrictive on the other end, you know, when you're getting back to your normality the following Monday as well. Um, yeah, that's great. But, but I, I think people need, need that, that bit of flexibility because if, if, if people get like, again, I said a little bit of rigidity in, in when starting out, it can be useful for some people, but you can't maintain that for the rest of your life. We, we live in a very fluid society where, you know, we can't control everything. And I think we have to learn how to be able to give up that control. And when that comes to food, we need to learn how to do that too as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about, for some reason, you know, we're talking about nutrition. It came into my head when I was back home, I was eating poorly for like a couple of weeks, like one summer. And I was like, it's, it's mad how that can happen, but then also give it a couple of months, a couple of years later, and it can get back to like a really kind of healthy place. Like it's, um, it's amazing. If you're flexible, you give yourself a break, really. You can you can really make a lot of progress and 
like one kind of, you know, quote unquote, slip up in your diet isn't final. You know, there's always a new day. Start again fresh on the Monday. Go again and pick up where you, where you left off. Um, one thing I, I actually say, and I, I'm going to I'm going to kind of call 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 out this word. Like if I was talking to a client and if they said I slipped up bad last night, I would just I'd hop in straight away and I said, you didn't slip up. You enjoyed yourself. You had a good night out. That's what people do. You know, it was one night out. Look, and but I, I will say, like, if somebody's like suddenly they, they decide, okay, like I'm going to go out every single night and go out to restaurants and just eat a ridiculous amount of food, then it's like, okay, look, you know, you are. I think when it comes to diet, it, you're you are what you do regularly. Okay, um, so if you're having a meal out on the weekends or you know two nights during the week, you know, so what if the rest of your diet is is like really really well dialed in? But, you know, I don't consider that a slip up by any means. I consider that living life. Um, whereas if somebody's doing it every day, then, yeah, you, you, you need to kind of intervene a little bit. Yeah, definitely. You need to be aware of what you're doing. Um, I think if you were to apply the 80-20 rule to a, a year, that 20% would add up to something like 72 or 73 days where you didn't uh, focus or prioritize your health, you know, 100%. And you kind of allowed yourself to be more flexible. So. Like that's a lot. Uh, that's a big chunk of the year. Like you know, it's 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 over like one day out of the out of the uh, the week each year. So it's huge. Um, I also think you can you can prioritize your health in a passive way. Like it doesn't need to be like this active process where you're constantly thinking, okay, I need to do this. I think like one, with the establishment of ha- habits over time, people just get good at like you know, like eating well, controlling their 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 portions. Um, like getting lots of fruit and vegetables into their diet. I just think it becomes habit, becomes normal. Yeah, eating intuitively. It becomes uh, ingrained almost. Do, do, yeah. you, do you recommend uh, eating intuitively to clients? Is that something that you use? So interestingly enough, it's not something that I've looked into a huge amount and I, I, I won't actually comment on it because I don't fully understand the scope of intuitive eating and, I, and I'd hate to... Um, let's say, insult the people who've created intuitive eating by, by you know, uh, misrepresenting it. So, yeah, it, it's not something that uh, I, I use, but it's definitely something I want to learn more about. Yeah, very, uh, very good answer, Richie. Um, I haven't fully studied it or looked into it, but I know a little bit about it. And just that whole idea of, like, kind of giving yourself a break, being flexible, you're, you're kind of mirroring a lot of what the, uh, the fundamentals of intuitive eating art so i think you'd be in a good place to learn about it um are there any kind of foods that help people be more flexible like is there any kind of common foods you would say you know there's no harm to have this or you know certain foods that people have difficulty with clients for example that uh maybe they don't allow themselves to have or they have trouble moderating so it it can like trigger foods is is a word that i will occasionally use um and i'll give an example of um uh for example let's say crisps so some individuals have a lot uh have very little ability to restrain themselves when it comes to eating crisps you know there's like they start one and then it's just like you down the whole pack and uh and i'm not talking about like the, the little kind of individual serving packs of uh potatoes that we used to get when we were kids i'm talking about like the big family packs that you get in the supermarkets these days um so in general i don't like to restrict food I don't say to somebody, okay, I think we, we shouldn't do this or we shouldn't do that. I, I'm very, very much in favor of um, encouraging people to incorporate foods that they really enjoy into their diet. Like, so for example, like I love ice cream and I have it multiple times a week. I just think it's, you know, my life is better because I have ice cream and I, you know, like the same way some people are like, they're, they're better people because they have coffee. Um, I'm a better person because I got ice cream. Um, but for some individuals, uh, I will try as much as possible to incorporate that in. But if I'm seeing that they're having incredible difficulty with restraint around certain foods, and if it if I find that it's impacting um, impacting them both psychologically in terms that they feel really bad about the way that they're eating it, or if they it's impacting them physically in terms of like it's it's potentially holding them back from from making progress, I will say, okay, look, let's maybe avoid having that in the house for a while. But one thing that I'm very, very clear about is I'll say we're not having it in the house. So it's not something that they can reach to in times of stress, for example. But I will say, look, if you're out and about and if you want to get um, if you want to get a, a small pack, absolutely do it. OK, like I'm not going to say you can't have it, but it's just it's just making it a little bit more difficult uh, 
for it to be, for example, something that somebody could binge on and, and just kind of, you know, genuinely, if, if somebody binges on something like that uh, regularly, like almost on a daily basis, it could impact their progress. And I want them to progress. Uh, so I might say, okay, let's avoid that for a while. But the whole goal will eventually be to try and reincorporate it back in um, with a, a, a level of moderation, um, if we can if we can achieve that. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like going on a kind of a maintenance phase, like if you're approaching nutrition in that way, where you might go in a fat loss phase or a muscle building phase. And in the maintenance phase, you're just kind of like, you're not, you're not working on this trigger food, but then in the long term, you know, you'll, you'll try and make progress and you might bring it back in kind of slowly and gradually. That's a very, Absolutely. very practical approach. Um, and ice cream, big fan of it as well. The Halo Top ice cream is huge out here and they have a whole range of selection out here. It's, it's, it's a, a, a fitness uh, professional's dream. <laughs> You know, I was I was really big on the, the Halo Tops and all of the uh, the kind of the related local ice creams for a while, um, and then I just realized I just prefer real ice cream. I'll just have a smaller portion of it, um, and I just prefer it a lot more. Maybe a few extra calories, a little bit more fat, but you know, um, it's good. So, <laughs> not that Halo Tops aren't good, and I've had some very very good ones, but uh, yeah, I just prefer the real deal. Yeah, and then you're you're testing your flexibility as well because. You're saying, I'm going to make this fit into, you know, my lifestyle, my nutritional plan, but I'm not going to overdo it. Um, and I'm going to use a little bit of restraint, which is, you know, having the best of both worlds, really. Absolutely. Yeah. Something that make, this makes me think of kind of related is like, you know, protein bars and stuff like these, these kind of foods that are kind of in the gray area where it's like, oh, they're high in protein, but they taste exactly like a candy bar. Do you have any kind of opinion on the, the health benefits or the lack of health benefits with these types of foods? Uh, so, um, everybody assumes that because like I'm, I'm kind of in this whole like you know fitness sphere uh, or whatever uh, that I eat a load of protein bars, um, and I don't eat them a lot. Uh, I, I I I tend to get them from friends a lot. So and I I only ever buy them myself if I'm getting them on a discount. But I do buy them for a reason, and that is because I find them incredibly convenient at times. Um, so for example, like today I, I, I went for a really, really long cycle, um, with a friend of mine and I brought a couple of protein bars cause I knew that they would be one They're They're super portable. Like, you know, I could just throw them in the back. Um, I like to get protein in relatively regularly during the day. Um, and if I'm going to be away from home and if I, I, I want to get like, you know, a, a little, uh, a protein topper on a meal, like, so for, for example, if I, if I get a meal out and I don't get a huge amount of protein in it, I might just have a protein bar afterwards just to, to top it up. It's not something I eat regularly and they're not something that I personally find. Okay. Like once I've started and had one, I, I want more and more and more. Um, they're, they're tasty, but, uh, I don't think they're, they're that level of tasty. Um, also uh, anybody who's uh, experienced the, let's say the gastrointestinal intestinal effects of eating a, uh, a number of protein bars at the same time, uh, will tell you it's just not worth it. <laughs> Yeah, they're too good to be true. Taking yeah. too high doses for sure. Yeah. Um, and then just speaking of protein, and you know, your your specialty is uh is aging and sarcopenia. How mm. does uh protein intake change, you know, kind of across the lifespan? Um, I've heard our ability to actually I won't I won't comment. I'll just let you tell us <laughs> because you're the expert. So yeah, how does it change over the lifespan? Uh expert in uh, again. Um uh, in air quotes um yeah so one one thing like you mentioned sarcopenia and sarcopenia is kind of like the, one of the main focuses of my research and, and for anybody who is not familiar sarcopenia is the the loss of muscle mass and function as we as we get older um so the way i kind of say it to people is if you've if you can remember your let's say grandmother when you were a child and if you if you're an adult now and you think about she probably looks maybe a little bit smaller a little bit uh almost, I don't like saying it, but a little bit shriveled up. And as older people get older, they tend to lose muscle and it, it tends to make them look a little bit kind of smaller and weaker and frailer. And um, it's, it is actually a very, very serious uh, condition because sarcopenia is associated with a number of, let's say, long-term knock-on effects. So for example, we know that people who uh, have sarcopenia are at a greater risk of heart disease. 
um, cardiovascular disease. They're at a greater risk of diabetes. Um, they're at a greater risk of some cognitive decline. Um, uh, they're at greater risk of falling um, just because they're, they're not as strong and as they're not able to react as quickly as they used to be. They're, and because they're, they're at a greater risk of falling, they're also at a greater risk of osteoporosis, which means that they're at a greater risk of breaking a hip when they fall. And we know that when older people um, break a hip or have a serious fracture, they're at a greater risk of death within the, the coming year as well. Um, so sarcopenia is a, a pretty serious condition, but like people often wonder why does sarcopenia happen? And is it something that's kind of inevitable? And there are, let's say, two main reasons behind sarcopenia. One is um, as we get older, we tend to become a lot less active. So we move a lot less, we do a lot less uh, exercise and a lot less physical activity in general. And the main stimulus for building and maintaining muscle is physical activity. We, it, it is by far, it is better than any protein um, that you will have or any other supplement that you take, any other legal supplement that you take for building muscle. Um, uh, and as we get older, we exercise less, we move less, and our body realizes we don't need to hold on to that much muscle. So we lose a lot of it. Um, and then besides that lack of uh, activity, there's also something called anabolic resistance. And anabolic resistance is the reduced reactivity of our body to anabolic stimuli. So anabolic stimuli are, like I mentioned, exercise. Um, and then the other one is protein ingestion. So normally if we exercise, it stimulates something that called muscle protein synthesis. Um, and if we eat protein, that also stimulates muscle protein synthesis. Um, but our body's reaction to protein and exercise as we get older, it gets dulled, it becomes less and less, and that's called anabolic resistance. And there's a number of reasons for it. Um, there's uh, insulin resistance as we get older. We have reduced vascularity within our muscles. So we've got less blood vessels within um, our, uh, in our muscles, which actually inhibits their, their function, their ability to grow. Um, we have poor digestion as we get older, so we don't absorb as much protein from food uh, anymore. And these all add up over and greater levels of inflammation. I should mention that as well, just because it's, it's a considerable effect. Uh, and all of these add up over time. And it means that despite the fact that we might be doing similar things to a young person um, in, in terms of like exercise and eating protein, it's not having as great an effect on older people. And just to make that kind of to, to, to help people visualize that. In, in younger people, we know that about 20 grams of a high quality protein, like whey protein, is enough to relatively maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But in a 70 year old, they may, may need double that or more. So 40 grams of protein, 40 grams of whey protein, just to stimulate um, muscle protein synthesis to the same amount. Um, so that's a considerable amount of protein. And so my research focuses on augmenting, increasing the amount of protein in, in older people's diets um, with some other dietary changes in order to help them overcome that anabolic resistance. Um, and then we incorporate resistance exercise, so training with, with weights um, to help them build muscle. So they're basically fighting back against that sarcopenia, that loss of muscle over time, and hopefully improving their, their cardiometabolic health. So we actually, by the sounds of it, need more protein as we get older. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and the, inter the interesting thing is just to, to mention that as well, like we, we, we already know that older people in general don't um, eat a lot of protein, um, especially at breakfast, for example, like in, in the UK, if you look at UK food records, um, older people, they're probably getting like about 12 grams of protein at breakfast, because when you think of it, older people are they having maybe a couple of slices of toast and um, maybe some cereal or something like that. It's, it's not a very high protein meal. Um, so we, we need to kind of focus on increasing that amount of protein for them. Right. Yeah. And in terms of like activity lowering as we get older, do you think it's harder to exercise as you get older? Or do you think people it's, it's like in the culture that we in, and in society that we we should slow down as we age? What do you think is the cause of people exercising less? I think I think it's a combination of both. Um, I think it, it's definitely within the culture that people think somebody's getting older, um, they don't need to do as much. Um, you know, they don't need to do as much heavy lifting. They don't need to do as much walking. People are more willing to accept help from other people. Um, and like, uh, 
you know, I like just to give you an example, I'm, I'm from a farming background and my, my, my father has worked every single day of his life hard on the farm. Um, and I just know now he's coming close to, like he's, he's, he's getting very, very close to retirement. He should be retired in my opinion. Um, but he, I know he's doing less because he's just, he's older and he feels like he kind of deserves that chance to, to do less. And I completely agree with him. The great thing about my dad is he, he's also, he, he recently got big into spinning um, because it's a way for him to, to increase his physical activity as well. Um, so there is that, that culture of like letting people kind of relax more as they're older, which I think is fantastic, but we can relax more without kind of saying goodbye to physical activity at all. Um, but then for some individuals, uh, especially individuals who have never had a, let's say a background in, in sports or any form of physical activity, as they get older, they get, obviously, their, their muscle mass decreases, their muscle function and strength decreases, and exercise is genuinely difficult. Um, and what I say is, when we're kind of prescribing exercise to older individuals, it's, or anybody really, it's very, very important to start at their level, okay? Um, so their level may be chair exercises. By chair exercises, I, you know, for anybody who's not familiar, it's like, you know, having somebody sitting in a chair and they're exercise might be standing up out of the chair and sitting down and standing up a few times just to work on on their quads working on and, and those are essential movements like standing up and sitting out of a chair it, it might sound easy to everybody but that's a, a an essential uh, movement of daily life um or you could have some older person you say okay i want you to walk up and down the stairs 10 times um and do that a couple of times a day um and again and that's that starting at their level because the worst thing you could do is say okay um bring somebody who's never exercised their life, they're 75 years old, 80 years old, bring them into a gym and then you, I hate this word, you go beast mode on them and you just like decide, okay, let's just do all of these machines. So tomorrow you're probably going to have rhabdo and you're going to like feel that you want your muscles just to fall off your body so you don't have to feel them anymore. I think that's a terrible way to do it because that's a great way of saying to somebody, okay, or encouraging somebody to never go back and exercise again. So start at their level and build up from there, incorporating movements that they can do and that they will be able to do over time as they get stronger. Yeah, just because Joe Rogan had rhabdo one time doesn't make it cool or something that you should try and <laughs> aim for, yeah. I, I don't know Absolutely. where this idea of muscle soreness came out of. People, oh, I didn't feel sore after the workout or I did feel sore after the workout and that means I had a good or a bad workout. It's like, no, that's, no, you know, just because, you know, if, if you are saving money, for example, and you, you know, you felt the pinch the next day or whatever, you know, I can't get my lunch today because I'm saving so much. It's like, you wouldn't equate that as a good, you know, day saving. Like, you know, it's, it's silly where that idea came from. It's very, very much the, the no pain, no gain mentality um, that, that some people have. Uh, actually, and just, just to give an, another example, uh, uh, I don't want to go on about it, but I had a client recently who um, had never, she, she said she, I wanted to incorporate some, uh, resistance exercise into our program and she wanted to because she wanted to get stronger and fitter but she was very very nervous about going to the gym because she said anytime that she had gone to the gym in the past she um she had suffered from terrible doms and she absolutely hated it and um i said okay um and how long did you continue on with it for and was it like and, and her, in her mind it was like going to the gym lifting weights was doms all the time and she said no like if, if i got the doms I, I would never go back and i said okay let's do this we're going to start really really easy you know like a couple of sets of these exercises um and i can promise you that within two weeks you will not be feeling doms anymore okay so she went uh for the first week and she said okay i'm a little bit sore this week but it's not terrible okay um, and that was, that was again, my bad. Like I, I just, uh, I probably overprescribed, even though I was being hyper cautious with her within two weeks, we, we, we were speaking again and I said, so are you feeling any of those doms? And she was like, no, which she said begrudgingly almost. Um, and now she absolutely loves the gym. She was, she was never somebody who went to the gym, but now she absolutely loves it as part of her daily routine. She goes like, uh, in the middle of the day, like on her lunch break. And she's like a completely different person. Um, but it was really, really important to help her get out of that mentality of like, you're going to hurt every time you work out. Uh, and a lot of people have that. And I, I can understand it because, you know, some PTs, they they like to do that to people at their first sessions. Like, yeah, let them 
let them know that they worked out the next day, um, which I think is a terrible approach. Yeah, long term, the no pain, no gain isn't sustainable because you can't always get to the point where you're going to feel it the next day and you don't want to because you have to train maybe a couple of times in a week and you don't want to be crippled. But uh, that, that story actually just about your dad was amazing that, you know, he, he, he actually still wanted to exercise when he was older. Um, I'd guess that he probably wasn't very injury prone or he didn't have a lot of injuries if he's able to be working so long. Is that right? Or does he have a lot of injuries? <laughs> uh, if, you knew, if you knew my dad, uh, you wouldn't call him. You wouldn't say that he's not injury prone. Um, work, working on a farm, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything happens. Um, so yeah, my dad's, my dad's uh, had multiple injuries uh, like that. I've seen him over the course of the past, however many years of our life, but um, he's had plenty. Um, he had a, actually had a nasty spill a couple of a few years ago, which he hasn't fully recovered from in terms of his knee. Um, so it makes certain movements very, very difficult. But spinning is actually it's it's very, very easy for him to do because it's it's not. Uh, it, yeah, it, it doesn't uh, stress his, his knee in, a, in that specific way. So it, it's I think it's fantastic for him. It's a great cardiovascular workout. And also a great social uh, opportunity for him because obviously we're in the countryside um and this would be one of the kind of the, the few opportunity opportunities he has during the week to speak with other people and i, I think that's great for him as well that's a, another major benefit of of group exercise yeah that's what i was going to say exercise you can find your own community where we're so disconnected in the, the kind of digital age we're in it's, it's hard to find um and a, a kind of a lie i like to tell myself you know is it's kind of an educated lie is that uh, I'm more resilient because I work out and I exercise. So like, not that I'm, you know, Superman and I'm able to take on, you know, any kind of challenge or anything like that, but like I'm more robust and in the face of an injury, I'll bounce back quicker. Or, you know, uh, I had a nasty accident with my, my shoulder, I dislocated my shoulder. And I tell myself because I was exercising before that, and because I rehabbed with exercise, basically the overarching benefit of exercise that you wouldn't think of is you bounce back quicker from a setback or an injury and injuries just kind of, you just take them in your stride when you're already exercising, really. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think like being physically fit and you know, exercising regularly and building a certain base level of strength, it improves your life in a huge amount of ways in terms of like, God, like walking up a stairs is, it just feels easy, but like recovery like that is a really, really important one to talk about as well. Um, and like it has a lot of met metabolic uh, benefits as well. Um, I I'm very, very cautious to to, to kind of say like, so I, I would say it, it like, I think saying somebody's more resilient is a really, really good way way of saying it. Instead of saying somebody is completely bulletproof, because I know that there's a lot of like um, gurus on the internet that like to talk about how being metabolically healthy will, you know, save you from virtually every condition going around. Like it is a, a, a total uh, panacea or something like that. Um, like I think in, in nutrition, we have to talk about, you know, risk and, uh, you know, you can only reduce your risk. You can never eliminate it entirely. Um, and like, this is me as a nutritionist and somebody who works with, uh, you know, exercise in, in clinical trials. I think they're fantastic. I think they're absolutely amazing, but they are not guarantees of, you know, uh, eternal health by any means. Absolutely. Yeah. We can't, uh, root out the risk completely. We can just minimize it. Yeah, um, exactly. So then just going on to some of your posts that were pretty interesting. It's uh, one of them was just about how like stronger people tend to live longer. There was a study and they looked at like grip strength. Uh, could you tell us just a little bit about like, you know, maybe why stronger people live longer and just a little bit about that the actual post itself? Yeah. So, so strong, strong, what we see with that is that um, people who, so I, I obviously mentioned sarcopenia and saying that it's the loss of muscle mass and muscle function. What we see, if we look a little bit more closely at the at the research, is that the relationship between muscle function and specifically mus muscle strength with um, long-term mortality is probably stronger than the relationship with muscle mass. So what I think is important to say with that is like, just because somebody has a lot of muscle mass doesn't automatically mean that they're, they're super healthy. But if somebody is stronger than other people of the same age, they've probably, they, it is a very, very good indication. So 
with older people, we, we do see that increased um, grip strength or even uh, increased uh, lower body strength. So leg, leg press, for example, is often used in, in the research, um, tends to be associated with uh, a lower risk of mortality. Um, and that is probably because people who are stronger and people who are, um, yeah, people who are stronger are probably more physically active. And on top of that, they potentially have a, you know, like better, let's say, health habits overall. So, you know, they may eat a little bit better. They may get a little bit of protein. Like a, a lot of this is very, very difficult to kind of deduce in it from um, this kind of uh, observational research. Uh, but they may have a healthier dietary pattern overall, healthier habits overall, and that helps them to maintain muscle mass. It helps them to maintain strength over time. And then that's associated with that, that lower risk of, of death. So kind of going back to what we said earlier, it's not, there's no black and white answer. It's like, it's, mul <laughs> it's multifactorial, you know, it's, it's a great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Unfor unfortunately in, in nutrition, there's no black and white answers. And, and I think if somebody starts giving you black and white answers, turn around and run the other direction. I think that's a, a, a decent piece of advice to give. Yeah. I suppose on the flip side, the, the nice thing about that is there's loads of little things you can do to, you know, increase your longevity. It's not just like you have to do exercise or you have to eat right. You know, you can, you can sleep well as well. For example, there's loads of little things you can do. Um, Absolutely. Like, you know, obviously like I, I'm, I'm going to uh, talk about the benefits of exercise and eating well a lot just because it's, it's my field. Um, but yeah, like, like you've, you've mentioned, there are other habits that people should incorporate. But I think uh, when we incorporate multiple good habits, uh, together that's when we really really start to see a lot of the benefits coming together and even just something we kind of touched on is the social element of health like you know having a good social circle being well connected you know you're back home i'm sure you've got like plenty of people to catching up with or talking about your, your dad and having the the group classes like you know that's really overlooked and a very very important part of health especially you know during the pandemic as well Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think if if you look at like longevity studies when they they talk about blue zones, one of the one of the the common uh, factors within blue zones besides you know the the healthier diet, and, you know the kind of the uh, less urban environments is the fact that a lot of these people have very very good social networks and social support groups. Um, and that's something that's really really difficult to quantify within research. Uh, I know, like uh, as as a nutritionist, I I, I can't imagine how somebody would kind of go into the field and like let's say okay you know let's do we count your friends do we count your you know every time you talk to your friend or something like that but it seems to have an absolutely massive effect on um improving people's quality of life which i think is is not spoken about enough but yeah um uh, from an outcome basis it's really good for just basically improving people's longevity and keeping people alive longer. I don't, maybe it's just because, you know, if you've got more friends, you've got more reason to live longer, something like that. What do I know? It's not my field. <laughs> yeah, or even the quality of friendships. You might have a, a small but close, you know, circle as well. That could be another way. It could be Absolutely. benefiting your quality of life. Those uh, meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is something that women are better at than men, having, you know, better quality of friendships. They say men don't open up and that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, speaking of women, this the other post was about how women they can lose muscle up to ten years earlier. That's something I hadn't heard before. Is that like uh, something that women should expect, or you know, how what's the kind of the differences between men and women with you know aging? Yeah, so so sarcopenia. Um, a lot of people talk about it and they say sarcopenia really starts, you know, in your in your fifties or something like that. But um, if if we look a little bit more closely at, and it's really important to talk about like general populations here because I'm sure that there's a lot of people like you know who, who listen to this and they're probably very very fit and healthy and they exercise regularly and they say I'm not going to lose my muscle mass earlier than that. Or I'm I'm not going to lose muscle mass at all. But I think in the general population where people generally don't exercise, we see that. People start to lose muscle mass quite um, early in life. Like so, women tend to lose it in their um, their late thirties, men in their late forties. Uh, from there, and so women lose it a little bit earlier. We don't know exactly why, but one reason that has been put forward is potentially because women engage in less strenuous physical activity than men. Okay. Um, so that is a possibility. So they've got less of that stimulus for for maintaining. Um, muscle mass and again i, I I'm, I'm saying that and I, I need to add the caveat that like you know i'm sure again uh, a lot of the female listeners to this show would probably say like I, I i exercise regularly 
we have to think about the general population and, and the general population, <laughs> in general, the general population doesn't have a lot of healthy habits when it comes to either food or uh, physical activity. Um, so what happens there can be a little bit different to, let's say, the, the health conscious population. Yeah, there's a lot of factors uh, that I think a lot of people aren't, the general population aren't aware of that conspire against your long-term health. Like, you know, you've, you've no bad intentions with your health, but like the food in the supermarket, you know, it's, for the most part, it's, it, there's a lot of crap food out there. The ability to do exercise, you know, it's very difficult if you're not very conscious about it. So we're not blaming anyone. We're just saying the facts, really. Um, I, I, think, I think that's actually a really good point to say that, like, you know, I think people shouldn't be blaming themselves uh, at least not entirely. Like uh, th th again, this is a very this is a, a completely different conversation for for another day. But like uh, the environment that we live in really does conspire against us in terms of it. You know, our environment is not uh, exactly um, let's say ideal for maintaining a a healthy population, and that's in, in, in terms of like it, it, our environment is. It makes you know being inactive very very easy, and it makes eating a lot of let's say l lower quality food uh, a lot easier as well yeah speaking of lower quality food so when i was back doing uh my postgrad i was you know getting really into the research and nutrition and i came across this thing called a food desert have you ever heard of that before i, I i'm familiar with the term i haven't looked into it a huge amount yeah yeah so when i came across it i was like oh yeah sure if you live near a food desert or basically a place where all the food there is highly processed. It's really no uh, low uh, quality. Like there's very few fruit and vegetables. Think of lots of candy and all sodas and ice cream, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I was back uh, in Ireland and um, I realized there was one in San Francisco in the Tenderloin. It's like, you know, an impoverished area. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. You know, and then I'm like, actually, it's not. That's really a sad thing that such a rich and wealthy city has one of the worst places for nutrition, you know, that you can think of. It's like an actual coined term. So um, people might not even be aware of that, you know, oh, this is just the local corner store or whatever, but it's actually causing you health uh, issues long-term by, by shopping there if you're not aware of it. That's yeah, just absolutely. the reality of the situation. Um, something that uh, came to mind is if women lose muscle potentially 10 years earlier in the general population, how is it then that, the life expectancy for women is longer. It's a bit of a tricky question. I'm putting you on the spot here now, but any ideas? Well, why? No, so so they're, they're, again, that's again, probably multifactorial as well. So, um, so for example, you said that women are better communicators than men um, and that could potentially uh, lead to them having more long-term meaningful conversation, uh, sorry, uh, relationships that, that basically helps them maintain a certain level of longevity. Uh, another thing with women is that they are less... Um, they are more risk averse than men. Um, so what I, I, I often say is men are absolute aegis and will do stupid things a lot more regularly than women. And that reduces our life expectancy. Um, women tend to have uh, better eating habits in general. Uh, so women tend to follow more, um, let's say, prudent dietary patterns, uh, which, you know, basically uh, women eat better. They have and, and that kind of has an effect on their health longer down the line. Women have the benefit of uh, having estrogen in their body for a long period of time uh, until their menopause. And then if they go on HRT, they continue to have estrogen. And that estrogen has a lot of benefits in terms of cardiovascular health and reducing women's risk of coronary heart disease. Um, so yeah, there's there are multiple other factors that kind of can, can explain why women tend to, to live longer than men. Yeah, so they... They lose uh, more muscle, but in the end, they have the last laugh. <laughs> yeah, oh God, I, I hate to think they're laughing at us because they they uh, live a little bit longer and we're dying off. But um, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so then the the study you put out uh, first of October last year, sarcopenia during uh, the COVID lockdown. So the long term health effects of short term muscle loss. So that's that's a very interesting heading. So you would think oh, you know, I was locked down for a year or 18 months or whatever it was, and I wasn't as active as I'd like to be. Sure, I'll be fine. I'll bounce back. But did you find any long-term health effects to the, to, the, to the lockdown? Or, you know, what were the main findings there? 
So our, our so that was a, a review study. So what happened was when lockdown happened, um, obviously our research got put on hold because everybody was was in lockdown. We we couldn't go anywhere, and like it just kind of popped into my head that like, you know, these conditions are absolutely horrendous for maintaining muscle mass, and there's probably a number of reasons for that. So I said we we should look into this and we should write something up on this. So we started looking at. Uh, so it, it was a it was a big review paper in fairness but we we looked at um, a lot of the different factors that could contribute to muscle loss during lockdown and so for example um one being in the home and not being as active as normal massive one okay a lot of people like if you look at uh, some of the data that was available step counts dropped dramatically um, at the initial stages of lockdown and like I know for a fact since I've been working from home my step count is like a, I won't say how low it goes but it, it, it's it's embarrassingly low uh, and a lot of people does uh, have done the same and we know that even with just lowering step counts we can lose muscle mass in certain populations especially if they're not doing any type of exercise we know that um stress levels are quite high uh, because a lot of people were feeling anxiety due to, due to lockdown uh, that long kind of, let's say, chronic stress can lead to elevated levels of cortisol, which can, again, reduce muscle mass. Um, it can also affect sleep. We know that lower, uh, like once somebody's sleep becomes reduced, it's harder to maintain muscle. And we, if we lose weight, we tend to lose muscle uh, muscle before we lose fat. So we're kind of, we've, we've got this body recomposition over time where people are losing muscle and gaining fat. And then when people are at home as well, there's also the issue of comfort eating where people are, you know, like dealing with the stress by eating um, and they're often eating uh, what we call ultra processed foods, um, which are just easy to get and, um, you know, convenient to have in the house and tend to be quite low in protein, very, very easy to overeat. So there are multiple factors that can, can kind of contribute to um, muscle loss uh, during the pandemic. So we, we spoke about those factors and then we spoke about like the, the long term potential health effects that could come from this, this muscle loss. And we also spoke about the fact that, you know, if somebody who gets COVID, they may end up in intensive care. And if they're in intensive care, um, they may be, you know, even less active. They, they may be in a bed for a week or even two weeks at a time. Um, and when somebody is bed bound like that, muscle loss happens incredibly quickly. And in older people, because they don't exercise as regularly, sometimes they'll never regain all of the muscle that they lose. And then that kind of leads to um, a bit of a rehabilitation crisis, potentially after uh, after lockdown. And we, we, we see now that like in, in some of the, the research, the more recent research, that there is a major need for, for rehab for a lot of individuals post ICU or, or post um, uh, COVID infection. Sounds almost like a perfect storm for, for sarcopenia, you know, as in, especially Absolutely. if you're a bit older as well. Um, something I'd be, let me know your thoughts on this, but something I try to remind myself and tell clients is let's just say it took you, you know, uh, five years to get to your peak level of physical fitness, just, you know, throwing out arbitrary numbers here. Uh, you had something like the pandemic come along where it took you, you know, uh, off, off your kind of your normal plan and your, your health kind of took a backward step. Um, it took you five years to get to your peak, but to get back to your peak, it'll take, you know, half the time or less provided you follow the same habits that took you um up to, to your peak would you agree with that that you can bounce back far quicker or you know what would be your kind of thoughts around getting back after the, the pandemic to, to your best physically yeah absolutely um i think a lot of people were worried about that um especially a lot of people in the, in the fitness communities are like oh, i'm gonna lose all my gains um because of lockdown um but but the truth is uh i think get in building muscle initially it's a painstaking process and it takes ages it takes so bloody long but i find if we lose that muscle regaining it is not as hard and it, it it's, a, it's a lot quicker and uh, even regaining strength is a lot quicker as well and i think most people experience well let's say most people who have experienced lifting weights they would have experienced that after lockdowns when they finally got to go back to the gym it was obviously difficult they had lost strength initially but within a few weeks within a month or something like that they are probably back quite close to their you know let's say their uh, previous levels of strength and and yeah that's the thing with muscle um you know like that there's a couple of different reasons for it potentially one of them is like uh uh you know satellite satellite cell incorporation over time we know that having 
uh, built muscle in the first place, we usually incorporate satellite cells and torn muscles, and they tend to stay around for a long time. So that means if we lose muscle, they're there and it makes rebuilding, it makes all of that whole process of muscle pro, uh, protein synthesis a lot easier uh, the second time around. So there's there's a, probably a lot of different explanations for it, but yeah, I, I, I would say to people, like, don't worry too much about it. Um, I would even go as far as to say, is like, don't worry about it at all. Uh, do a little bit of exercise and you'd be surprised with how much muscle you can maintain, um, even if you're not going to the gym. Um, and then like, once you get back to the gym, you'll be, you'll be right as rain in a month's time. I think people, people really uh, catastrophize the whole um, lockdown a little bit more than it should have been for some individuals. Um, for older individuals, I think it was a problem because we're talking to older individuals that don't exercise at all anyway. Yeah. Um, and then as well, it's like you'll only lose muscle if you're in a deficit. Is that correct to say? Um, I wouldn't say that. I'd say being in a deficit definitely makes it easier. I, I think if somebody is not um, active and even if they're uh, eating at maintenance and especially in the conditions that we mentioned, like, you know, with poor sleep and stuff like that, it is very, very possible to, to lose muscle because um, and if somebody's yeah, if somebody's not exercising, they don't have a reason to hold on to that muscle. Um, so not and I, I really want to kind of to add a caveat of saying I'm not saying that muscle turns into fat. I'm just saying that if somebody's not exercising, your body's not going to hold on to that muscle as much. And if you're not eating in a, in a deficit, if you're eating at a certain level of maintenance, um, you're going to see a body composition change where, you know, you're probably going to gain a little bit of body fat and you're just going to lose a little bit of muscle. Okay. Yeah. So I guess, uh, you know, don't sweat the small stuff and just try and get back to whatever uh, semblance of a routine you can with your, your exercise and nutrition and, uh, you know, it's, it's a long-term game, you know, so we can make exactly. a lot of progress over the long term. Yeah. Um, all right. And just to wrap up the last one. So, you know, it wouldn't be a chat between two Irish lads if we didn't talk about drink. So uh, the, the study you had on the, the genetic uh, individuality um, and alcohol consumption. So is there a genetic component to, you know, how people interact with drink and just, you know, your thoughts on, on that study and anything that would be of note to, to mention? Yeah, so th that was a chapter that we wrote for um, a book on nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics. And just like for anybody who's not familiar, um, like uh, nutrigenetics is looking at how our genes um, basically affect or are affected by the foods that we eat over time. So our chapter looks specifically at alcohol. And there are a couple of um, fairly, well, relatively common um uh, let's say gene mutations uh, that can affect how somebody uh, interacts with alcohol. So just like to give people an idea, um, when we consume alcohol, al alcohol is, uh, our body would consider it a toxin. Um, and I mean that in the genuine sense of the word, it, you know, it has a toxic effect on our body and our body's like, we need to de detoxify this stuff and get it out as soon as possible. Um, so we uh, convert it into, um, so, uh, we convert it into uh, 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 an aldehyde um, and then we uh, in convert it into um, uh, an acid afterwards. So it's a, a two-stage process. And so we've got a couple of different enzymes that help us to do that. And within those enzymes, we've got different genotypes of people who can produce different versions of those enzymes. And sometimes those enzymes are not as effective um, or are differently effective to, to other ones. So for example, um, what, we, uh, what we can sometimes see is that when somebody, uh, if they've got a genetic mutation in the first enzyme, which converts uh, ethanol um, into the aldehyde form, we, all, we know that the aldehyde form is actually more toxic than the ethanol form, but it's just an intermediary. So if we have individuals, they've got very, very um, efficient, enzymes that convert into that aldehyde form of alcohol very, very quickly. Um, and what happens is we, we convert it so quickly, if we don't have a corresponding way to get rid of that alcohol, uh, that aldehyde uh, quickly enough in time, that is where we get a lot of the, the negative effects of alcohol. So if you think of somebody who's, who's drunk, for example, they may be slurring their speech they may have, you know, red cheeks. Um, and like, basically what you think of what a drunk person is, those individuals, they actually get drunk easier because they've got a very hyper-efficient 
um, enzyme, okay, that is produced, that's basically, it's converting into this aldehyde intermediary very, very efficiently and making people experience alcohol sickness. Um, on the other end, we've also got individuals who um, have very, very slow versions of the second enzyme specifically. So they're not detoxifying this aldehyde form efficiently enough. So they, the, the aldehyde builds up in our body and we get extreme effects of um, alcohol uh, sickness. And interestingly enough, some of those, um, those alleles, those genetic mutations are quite common in, let's say, East Asian populations. So for example, places like China and, and Japan, and some people will say like, you know, um, people from those areas of the world, they don't handle their liquor as well as uh, people from, let's say, Europe. Um, and, and that is true to a certain extent. And like, I, I, have, I actually lived in Japan for a number of years and I can testify to that because I've seen people um, get completely hammered on like a half pint of beer. Um, and like literally within minutes, their face is completely red and they're slurring their speech. Um, so yeah, it, it, it happens, but there, there's, there are other effects as well. So for example, some, some individuals with, um, there's a gene called the, uh, I'm not gonna say what it's called, but it's the MTHFR gene. It, it has a, a certain name within the community um, and it's to do with um, uh, homocysteine detoxification. Um, and we know that if people are, uh, Basically, if they have got a, a, an inefficient form of that gene, it doesn't detoxify it, uh, homocysteine uh, as efficiently as it should. And we know that if somebody um, is consuming a lot of alcohol uh, and they have this genetic mutation, it can lead to uh, a higher incidence of certain cancers as well. So it, basically, the whole chapter was looking at different ways that consumption of alcohol can lead to different conditions because of different mutations within our, our genes, not necessarily always for the way we, we detoxify alcohol, but with multiple other genes as well. So there's a, there's a lot, some individuals are just more prone to um, either getting drunk or some people are more prone to getting fatty liver. Some people are more prone to cancer because of drinking alcohol. So it's like the, the world is very, very unfair in, in certain cases. Like we do, we all have different risk because of our different genes. I think that's uh, that was kind of the, the overarching idea of that specific char chapter when it comes to alcohol consumption. Some people can drink it and they get by fine. Others, it is very detrimental to their health. Yeah, that uh, reaction to drink, something I noticed in myself, uh, I kind of get like, you know, my, my skin goes a bit red or a bit puffy. Uh, I'm not sure what type of drink, but, you know, certain ones just randomly it'll happen. So there's definitely some sort of genetic component to it. Uh, I feel like there's a makings of a, a big idea there. If you could do genetic testing, you could figure out, you know, this person shouldn't drink this person. You have a great tolerance. This person, you'd be wary of this kind of type of drink or, you know, this health condition. There's a big opportunity there if you could figure it out. You know what? I, I think personalized nutrition like that has a very, very bright future. Um, but I think we're, we're still a little bit away from having the, the full understanding of how all of these genetic interactions happen. But yeah, I think that in the future, that, that will become a major part of, of medicine, I think, and nutrition. And just in terms of like a practical, kind of like a little bit of advice around like alcohol consumption and health and stuff, like what do you typically recommend clients do? I know we don't have a client in front of us to give specific recommendations. So it's like, it's kind of how long is a piece of string, but you know, it's, it's always a tricky one for me working with clients. Do you have any thoughts on that about, you know, how to be healthy uh, and also, you know, if you have a bit of alcohol, if you like it. it, it it's a tough one because uh, I don't actually drink myself at all. I never have. Um, so I kind of, I, I, that's one area where I find it kind of hard to relate to clients. But I will say to them, look, um, I just say, look, alcohol does have calories as well. Let's bear that in mind when, you know, we're going out and, and eating. I, I do kind of encourage them, um, just from a health perspective, not to consume alcohol a lot on their own. And potentially leave it for kind of social occasions when they're when they're out. But um, I do also have a lot of clients um, who will you know enjoy a, a glass of wine uh, or potentially two with with the, the odd meal at home. And like you know, who am I to to argue with that? Because um, uh, uh, it's part of the Mediterranean diet, right? Oh yeah, sure it is. And you know, apparently they live the longest. So you know, who are we to argue? Yeah, exactly. They're, they seem to be doing rather well for themselves. All right, Richie, thanks very much for your time. Um, 
is there anything you want to mention or tell people about or have you anything coming up you know maybe even some publications or anything you're working on uh yeah i've got god i got a, a couple of uh, publications in, in in the in the pipeline at the moment um i've just gone through a, a few months of absolute heartache trying to get revisions for one done i, I won't say anything about it yet because it, it hasn't been accepted but uh, touch wood uh, that'll get accepted for publication soon, and uh, that'll be all. Like I, I, I let everybody know once I once I make a publication. Um, I, I, I let people know on my social media. So, if anybody wants to kind of to to follow me on that, that'd be brilliant. And if anybody has any questions um, about my research or anything like that, I'm always happy to chat with people on on Instagram. I'm uh, as a as a researcher, I should be more active on Twitter. I am not. I'm awful at using it, but um. Uh, I'm trying at least to, to you get might better. be better off it's, it's a bit of a cesspool at times to be honest instagram is as well um but yeah if anybody wants to drop me a question i'm always happy to, to answer answer anything I, I get there as well brilliant thanks very much rishi